You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Among there are people next door. Oh, I guess the new owner's moving in. It's supposed to be very attractive. There are two guys out in the yard, and I think they're carrying a coffin. Charlie, do you want to make love or not? There was a murder last night. Charlie thinks he saw the victim in this house. I saw him carry her body out in a plastic bag. Another body of a young woman was discovered early this morning in back of the Sheridan Mall. <laughs> The guy did have bangs, and a bat did fly over my head, and a second later, he stepped out of the shadows. And don't you see what that means? Wait, let me guess. What? I have a vampire living next door to me, and he's gonna kill me if I don't protect myself. The vampire cannot enter your house without being invited first. This is our next-door neighbor, Jerry Dandridge. Hello, Charlie. Right everybody and welcome once again to GeekFest Rants. My name is Carlos Barone and today we are going to be talking about posters. Our first segment deals with our posters of the month and the entries this time around are Flash Gordon and Blade Runner. The original posters from the original films. We have lots and lots to talk about. We love these posters. We love these films and we're going to get into it right away. Then we will have a toy segment on Buck Rogers action figures. The old Mego kind of action figures. And I'm going to give you some tips that I found on the internet on how to repair them. The ones that are really, really old and loose. I figured out how to fix them, which is great. Buck Rogers is another one of these great genre shows from the 80s that we loved. It was in that post-Star Wars era. And recently we've been kind of getting into those figures again. And then finally in our comic book segment, we're going to talk about Fright Night. A great horror action comedy kind of film that i've loved since the beginning i finally got my hands on the comic book adaptation which i didn't even know it existed until very recently so we're going to examine that particular book and all the little quirks and surprises around the publishing of this particular item so let's get started with our posters of the month you can collect them all you are Battery's not included. 
Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the six million dollar man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. For today's posters of the month, we have Flash Gordon and Blade Runner. Flash Gordon is a really cool poster, and there are different versions of the one sheet, I guess you could call it, especially because this was a international type of film. You know, it was marketed outside the U.S. as they obviously do, but it did have a very international flavor to it. It was a Dino De Laurentiis film, so... The film has a very European flair to it when you watch it. Now, the movie is, we've talked about it before, it's a very campy movie. It doesn't take itself very, very extremely serious, but it does with what it has. In other words, you have to kind of suspend belief of certain things. You can't get too technical about it like you can on some other sci-fi films. Now, why does this film succeed in its campiness? I can't tell you. All I can tell you is that it works. And the poster, for possible obvious reasons, decides to go in a certain way. Now, the decision of what poster to use or what characters to put on the poster, that we never really know, unless we can find a, an interview somewhere with the, the poster creator or the person that actually ordered the poster to be made. Amsel, Richard Amsel, is the artist, and we've talked about him before. I wasn't able to find too much information about the creation of this poster, but it is the one that has Ming's head is up high when he's holding his ring. And then you see Flash and Dale underneath, slightly smaller. He's holding a sword from the end of the movie. And then you have on the left side of the poster, a couple of Hawkmen flying towards you. And on the right side, you have the, I think it's the floating Hawkman city on the other side. Now, it is an unusual selection, I would say, of material, because on a movie like Flash Gordon in 1980, which is when the movie came out, I imagine Max von Sydow was probably the biggest star of the film. He is the baddie, and that might explain why they chose him to be the most prominent person displayed on the poster. This is, again, a time where people were drawing. <laughs> Artists were involved in the process. This isn't the computer generated world now where people photoshop things in and out and pictures get cut and pasted and enhanced this is still done by hand and like i said max von Sydow's face basically covers almost half the poster now given the fact that like i said the film was a dino de laurentis film very european you know max von Sydow is a very very well-known you know european actor very well-known non-american actor so it is possible that with this poster, they are trying to push the best-known star of them all. And similar to how, you know, in the tradition, if you will, of like Star Wars, where you have Darth Vader, even though he's not the star of the film, he becomes such an iconic heavyweight. You do that here, too. But that's just me theorizing, because if you think about it, Flash Gordon, you know, it's a very old property. It's been around for dozens and dozens and dozens of years and flash is the star historically even in the film shorts back i don't know in the 50s and the 40s whatever flash was always the star 
But here they decided to kind of push the bad guy as as the star. Now I'm talking about poster here. On the credits, you do have Sam Jones <laughs> as the uh, you know getting top billing. So you know that doesn't you know uh, negate any of that. One of the things I read that some people were theorizing is that because of the campiness. That is something that they really didn't shy away from as far as the poster goes, because you could even see his face is so big, Ming's face is so big, that you could see his eyeliner has been drawn in. And, you know, you could kind of say it's part of the realism of the poster. Now, yeah, it's true. You can get that close and see that much detail. The question is, was it intended in the film? In other words, in the film, you know, he is heavily made up. You know, he does have, you know, this excessive makeup on him. But I wonder if that's something that they did on purpose or that was something that the artist himself, you know, wanted to bring out in the poster and nobody objected to. What's cool about the poster also is that on a little side section right next to the title, Flash Gordon, it says Music by Queen. And they really, really highlight that as something that has to catch your eye. But it's like, wow, look at that. That's great. And, you know, the Queen soundtrack for this movie is fantastic. Now, what's unusual about the poster itself is that, like I said, you have Ming in the background top high. You have the other stars in the bottom. But behind Ming, there is this red circle with pointy kind of design and it almost looks like the top half of the costume that he wears like it has a very high high collar but i'm not entirely sure that's part of the costume and then when you go down his arm behind him you do have more of this reddish flowing roby type of thing but it's not in proportion to the head or the arm so I'm not exactly sure what is happening behind. Is what's happening behind maybe a wall tapestry, some kind of background decoration? Why didn't they go with a good scale of Ming's body behind? It's really unusual. And I'm, you know, the more I look at it, the more I'm like, I can't figure it out. You know, the arm is there, the head is there, but what is the rest of the stuff that I'm seeing? Is it portions of his costume, but not all of it? You know, it's kind of weird. The other unusual thing I found about this poster is that, especially for a movie like this, where you are trying to emphasize the otherworldly nature of it, that they didn't choose to put more characters on the poster. In a way, I would say, similar to what they did with the second Raiders of the Lost Ark poster, the re-release poster that I talked about earlier, where you did have this border all around with all the different characters of the film. This one, I think, would have benefited it a lot because there are some other characters in the film that are obviously important, but are also, to the best of their ability, very science fiction-ish. You know, I remember there was like a lizard man so he would have been a cool little guy to have in the corner there. And you have other actors that were not, you know, superstars, but they're important characters in the story. The Baron, the Doctor, you know, all these other characters. Clytus, you know, that robotic looking guy who's kind of a little bit of a Vader knockoffy kind of character. But on the poster, his face would have been really menacing, cool looking on the corner there. And even the, the you know, Brian Blessed, you know, the leader of the the Hawkman, his face would have been cool to have there. So, yeah, I'm surprised they didn't go in that direction and they decided, all right, you know what? Let's just keep it with Ming, Flash, and Dale. It's like, okay, interesting, interesting concept. But overall, it's a great poster. I absolutely love this poster. 
My second poster that I put up recently, especially because I knew, you know, Blade Runner 2049 was coming out, was I put out the original Blade Runner poster. Now, there is a lot of posters out there. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But the one that I have is the one sheet from 1982, from the original release. Now, both my... Flash Gordon poster and my Blade Runner poster are reprints. They're not originals. I've never had these. I've never owned these from the original ones. But the reprints are very well, very well done. And they, they serve my purpose. The Blade Runner one that I have, to describe it so you know which one I'm talking about, is the one where you have Harrison Ford on the top holding a gun near his face and he's looking off to the side. You have Rachel underneath you know, off to the right a little bit. And then below her, you have the top view of a couple of buildings and some spinners kind of spinning into place. Now, this poster was done by John Alvin. And again, John Alvin, like Richard Amsell, is another one of these legends of poster making <laughs> back when they used to actually do posters in this manner. The particular design for the poster, from what I understand, started out different. It was more of a... Let's put everything on the poster, a lot of different players, a lot of, you know, the city, the spinners, you know. Originally, he, he started exploring drawing a lot more. But what was happening is, as the film was wrapping, and they were getting ready to do the promotional push, and they were ready to, you know, to pick which poster to use, or which concept to go with, this was around the time where Harrison Ford was coming off of an enormous blockbustery, you know, streak. He had, obviously, The Empire Strikes Back right behind him. He had Raiders of the Lost Ark making him a superstar as a leading character. And now Blade Runner was right there. So what apparently the studio had asked for at that point was, you know what, let's focus more on Harrison Ford's face. So the design had to change. So just like I said on the previous Flash Gordon poster, all of a sudden Ming's face is gigantic. Well... On Blade Runner, they wanted to make Harrison Ford face the leading thing into this poster because they are now promoting the poster as a Harrison Ford film and not so much as a, I don't want to say generic, but as a sci-fi film. Come visit this new sci-fi world and Harrison Ford happens to be in it. No, come watch Harrison Ford in a sci-fi world. You know, that's how it kind of changes. So... What the studio decided was that they wanted to use a certain shot of the film, you know, from the actual film, which is, a again, if you're familiar with this poster, it's kind of like a close-up of his face. The gun is very close to his face, and he's looking off to the side, and he's all sweaty and wet because it's from the duel, I believe, at the end of the film. The problem they had, apparently, was that the still photographer did not have that particular shot, you know, in the repertoire or of still photos that they took for the movie. So what instead they had to do was they had to get a film grab, you know, an actual film frame, and, you know, be able to kind of blow it up as much as possible and look at it under a, you know, a magnifying glass, because that was the shot that they wanted to use. So that's the reference that he ended up using for Harrison's face. From what I understand, you know, to get the full perspective of the hand holding the gun, like many other artists have done in the past, he grabbed uh, the gun himself, photographed it himself, and was able to use his own hand as a reference, holding, you know, like a toy gun or a fake gun. What's also incorporated into the poster behind Harrison Ford is these uh, beams of light that are supposed to signify, the, you know, blinds in his apartment, let's say, and how the light 
kind of comes through. And on the opposite end, you have Rachel's cigarette. You have smoke coming up. So it's supposed to kind of give you that noir feel, you know, for this film, trying to get you to understand that this is a different type of, you know, it's not a slick world. It's it's a very dark and dingy mysterious kind of world and below you have that entire entire city scape from above which is that shot we get when the spinner is kind of spinning down into the i think it's the headquarters of the police department one little cute tidbit about this is that from what i understand a lot of times studios didn't want their artists to sign their posters so a lot of artists would hide their signature into their poster some of them just it became a a practice of just hide the signature let's just hide the signature so for those who would like to hunt the signature down what you do is you look in at the poster you see those two circular buildings underneath the big one on the left the not so big one on the right go to the this not so big one on the right go to the top of the building and you see that next to it there's another building that is more like a squarish kind of building on the side kind of sideways if you will if you're looking at the building you will see the name alvin and it's almost like a sketch on the side of that building i wouldn't call it a neon sketch but it is there and you could easily see it you might might take you a couple seconds to find it so that's kind of cute now Ever since this poster was made, you know, because the movie became a classic, the poster is a classic. They've done many, many other iterations of this poster in terms of uh, re-releases, DVD releases, other artists. I mean, Alvin did a few more for the DVD releases, I believe, or even possibly for some of the um, director's cuts, final cut, you know, that kind of releases. But other artists have also contributed, uh, you know, to all of these new styles of posters that have been out there. Even Drew Struzan, who we talked about in the past, he's also contributed uh, to some of these future releases of the poster, you know, for the different marketing purposes. So overall, like I said, these two posters are great. They're just so iconic. They're these early 80s icon films that we don't really see anymore. We don't see these hand-drawn posters much anymore they're kind of like a vintagey retro type of thing and unfortunately both these artists have passed away uh, richard amsel passed away a, a long time ago and even john alvis has uh, is gone so uh it's just a different era of uh, movie poster making Let's take a quick break now and listen to a little spot from our friends at IC Robots. If you're into anything having to do with retro, vintage toys and 80s shows and all kinds of 80s and 70s vintage retro kind of games, television, movies, all of that geek culture that we love here at GeekFest Rants, take a look. When you visit their site, they have a podcast called The Toys R Us Report, and we strongly recommend it. So have a listen. Tune in to the Toys R Us report for your weekly dose of pop culture talk that's out of this world. Movies, TV, toys, comics and more every Wednesday on the IC Robots radio network at icrobots.com. What are you waiting for? It's time to get down or come up. All right, we're back. Thank you guys from IC Robots. And let's continue with our show. For today's collectibles, we're going to talk about Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Was it 25th century? I'm pretty sure it was 25th century. 
<laughs> Every time I, I say Buck Rogers, I keep thinking of Doug Dodgers, and then it's a different century or something like that. Anyway, we are talking about Buck Rogers action figures. This is a line that was out when I was young, but I don't think I paid much attention to it, to tell you the truth, because I was consumed by Star Wars. But because of Star Wars, I'm certain, I've said this a million times before, other sci-fi action franchises went forward with trying to merchandise their particular a product that they were selling, their particular show, movie, whatever. And Buck Rogers was one of them. Now, Buck Rogers wasn't, for its time, it was awesome in terms of the quality of these special effects. And, uh, you know, the stories were the stories. You know, you can't get too wrapped up on them. And it was a very short-lived series, if you really think about it. It completely changed gears halfway through it. We did a show a very long time ago about the history of Buck Rogers. But today we're going to talk about the action figures. Now, like I said before, the action figures were out, um, you know, around the time where I was, you know, in my Star Wars craze phase. (laughs) But I kind of stay away from them for many reasons. One of them was because I was focusing basically any money that I had on Star Wars toys, like I did for many, many years. Secondly, the way that these figures were constructed. Now, the figures themselves are more or less about the same size as the original Kenner Star Wars action figures, maybe a little bit smaller. But the way that they try to differentiate themselves, and this is Miko I'm talking about, different company, is by having many, many, many more points of articulation, what today would be considered super articulation. But the manner in which they achieved this was something that I had not seen before, For example, I was used to the Star Wars five-point of articulation figure, where the arm goes up, down, up, down, the leg goes up, down, up, down, head goes left, right, left, right. Very simple joints. Here, you have shoulder articulation, elbow articulation. Now, the shoulder articulation, not only does it go up and down, up and down like it normally does with a Star Wars figure, but it goes sideways, backwards, it does everything. It's a complete, you know, 360-degree rotational joint that they use for the arms regular head articulation like a regular star wars figure no big deal waist articulation the way these things are built they're built in sections and they're being held together internally by these very thick rubber bands what the rubber band allows you to do is to be able to let them swivel on their stomach area let's say on a kind of like a ball shaped hinge this way you can kind of twist left right forward, backwards, tilt, you know, tilt a little, tilt a lot, that kind of thing. It gives them a lot of range. And same thing with the thigh articulation, you know, the thigh area where the legs begin, that gives you, again, this type of ball and socket kind of setup. Again, this is all being held together by rubber band, by a little thick rubber band. And that gives your leg the ability to go forwards and backwards, and then you have knee articulation. Now, what makes these figures, and I remember that's something that I, I kind of, I would look at them and I'd be kind of turned off by them, make them a little less attractive, I would say, is the fact that in order to achieve a lot of these articulations, and in order for them to put together these figures, these were put in little tiny sections that you have to kind of, that they open and close. They had screws, Some screws are kind of permanent. They're kind of hinge screws, I guess you can call them. And some of them are actual, you know, Phillips head screws, for example, on his back, where you can unscrew his back and open up the entire chest cavity in order to reveal the rubber band. 
Same thing on the thighs. On the inner thighs, you have screws. Phillips head screws where you can remove those and open the legs in order to be able to, I guess, make some adjustments. But obviously for production purposes, it's to produce the figure, to put the figure together, to assemble it. I would imagine the assembly process would be way, way more difficult with these type of figures because there are so many more parts than a regular Kenner figure. Kenner figure, usually you got six parts, torso, arms, head, legs. But here you're dealing with, here, let's count them. Head, forearm, two parts per arm. So that's five now. The chest is two parts. The waist is one part by itself. The thighs, two parts a piece. And the bottom of the legs to the feet, that's one part. So let's count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen parts. My God. Fourteen versus six. Big difference. But one of the things that kind of normally would make me shy away from these figures is the fact that, like I said, these screws are noticeable. They're there. So no matter what kind of figure you get, no matter what color your figure is, there are these silver screws protruding, you know, on these joint areas. Nowadays, when they make super articulated figures, they figured out a way of just making them pop in and out and assemble them without screws. They're all plastic based. So now they are able to hide all these imperfections, if you will. But at the time, I guess this is the only way you could get this kind of articulation. Let's talk a little bit about what figures are there. <laughs> because what's interesting about this series is that the figures were produced based on the initial, you know, the pilot, the movie, the show pilot that got turned into a movie. That's how they kind of make the big action figure push. And because of that, it kind of created some unusual circumstances. But let me explain. You have your main character, obviously, Buck Rogers. He's wearing his white tight outfit, which is the Earth uniform type of uh, outfit. Very nice, very well done. Like I said, they're a little smaller than Kenner figures. You have Wilma, similar costume. Pretty nice, pretty nicely well done. Tweaky, one of my favorite characters in the show. They made a little tiny figure of him too, you know, in proportions. Then you have the Draconian Guard. Ooh, the bad guys. The bad guy soldier. The, the, you could army build these guys. Okay, fine. They have, you know, they have this specific uh, uniform, the specific helmet, specific look to it. Then they had Draco, which is supposed to be, from what I understand, the leader of the Draconian uh, Empire, I guess. Now, what's weird about Draco is that, from what I understand, from what I've been reading, and from what I remember... I don't think we ever really get to see him, you know, in that initial film or even in the show. They kind of shied away from uh, that character. I don't know if it was a cutscene or what, but it never really made it. But they made a figure because it was part of the initial run. Then you have Tiger Man, which is cool. He's kind of like the, uh, the, the thug, the bad guy thug of the group. A very, like, piratey looking guy, muscle guy. He's like... Uh, they called him Tiger Man because he's got all these animalistic and he's got this kind of like tiger print on part of his clothes. And he kind of reminded me of Jaws from James Bond. He was like the thug bad guy who didn't say much. He just tried to kick butt. <laughs> then you have Dr. Hewer, who was Buck's like mentor, scientific mentor. And then you had Kane, who was kind of like the, uh, the princess, the evil princess's lieutenant, let's say, you know. Again, pretty simple figure. And then you have the, the Princess Adrelia. Ooh, she was the, the big, sexy, bad guy princess. 
that was always taunting Buck. All these figures are in this particular style, which are the Miko style of figures. That's how they put them together. And we are going to see this type of thing in the future. Like I mentioned before, I never got these actual small figures before. What I did actually buy once when I was, you know, in my Star Wars phase was a large size Buck Rogers figure, uh, which is like the 12-inch line. And I remember for some reason, I was so impressed by the manufacturing of this figure, by the accessories, you know, the gun he had, the clothing they put on him. I mean, it, it was fantastic. And I, I remember it must have been towards the end of the Star Wars line. I, at one point, I was like kicking myself and, and thinking, why did I spend so much money on these Star Wars figures when I could have had these Buck Roger large size figures? <laughs> but luckily, it never went beyond that first figure, that Buck Rogers, that initial Buck Roger figure. I never got past that. The line did come with some other accessories if you uh you know had the time to collect they did put out a um like an earth starfighter type of vehicle uh the draconian starfighter evil starfighter they had another starfighter which is really weird looking it's not the traditional starfighter but it's more of like a pointy squarish i know it sounds kind of weird saying this but it was the it was called the laser scope fighter I don't remember ever seeing it. It almost, to me, looks like it was something manufactured just for the hell of it, which they do this a lot of times. They do manufacture stuff that has no, you know, rhyme or reason. And they also did manufacture something called the Land Rover, which, again, it might have been in an episode. I don't remember exactly if it was. I kind of slightly remember it. Uh, but this is one of those really hard-to-find type of vehicles that, because the line ran so short and kind of burned out really fast... This is uh, one of those very hard-to-find type of vehicles. Most of these uh, Buck Roger accessories or vehicles, if you will, you know, they're out there in the secondary market and eBay and stuff, and, and they are kind of hard to find, and they are kind of expensive, unfortunately. You might get lucky someday and pick one up for cheap. There was a play set, I believe, but it was mainly uh, made out of cardboard. Never saw it, just seen pictures of it. No big deal. I wouldn't go too crazy about it. Now, in trying to kind of get these sets, you know, again, this is something I never had in the first place, so it's not that I'm that crazy about it, but I did absolutely love the Tweaky figure, and in the way that I purchased him, I was able to buy an eBay one, and uh, the catch was that because I didn't want to spend serious bucks on this, I was able to find one that had a broken arm, <laughs> and uh, so I have my one-arm Tweaky here, and it actually it didn't even have a sticker in his chest, so I was able to find, somebody posted a picture of what the stickers look like. So I just kind of printed them on regular paper, regular plain paper, and kind of cut out the, that centerpiece that goes on his chest, and I was able to just kind of glue it back into place, and to me it looks fine, except for the fact that he's missing an arm, so I am in the process of looking for a spare arm. <laughs> as ridiculous as that sounds, sometimes stuff like that turns up. Or, if I had somebody with a, uh, a 3D printer, it'd be nice if they could make me one. I mean, it's a stupid little silver arm, worth probably a nickel, but... They probably would charge at least 10 bucks on the internet for a real thing. Some of the other figures, um, other than Tweaky, uh, Wilma and Buck, they, well, they also have a, a paper attachment. And, and for them, it's, the, it's an armband, like a rainbow color armband that's part of their costume. Those are sometimes uh, the type of things that get lost easily because they peel right out and you, know, you lose them you know, as a kid. Now, when I bought these figures, I didn't, couldn't tell at the time, and I had forgotten about this, and I, you know, it's one of those things that you kind of remember as you go along. When I received them, because I, I bought them as a lot, most of them came in a lot, except for Tweaky and uh, Draco, I think. Uh, they, they were part of a lot. And the first thing I noticed is that as soon as I got them, 
oh my God, these joints were so unbelievably loose. I couldn't, none of it, none of them could stand because the waist was loose. The knees were loose. Everything was loose. And it happens. This is a common occurrence with Miko figures after a certain amount of time. The rubber band dries out, stretches out, whatever happens internally. And then you have these, they're like marionettes. They just cannot hold their, <laughs> their own strength. They just fall apart on you. So I was able to find a video on YouTube, and I'll post a link if I remember, of how to fix them. And I'll tell you right now, a, a simple way is, again, as I mentioned earlier, these figures come apart in the chest area. Once you open up the chest through that back screw, you can access that rubber band. The rubber band is not the typical rubber band you find in your desk because it is very small, very small, but it's very tough. It's small, but tough. So what they recommend on the YouTube video that I uh, went to is to use rubber washers from a plumbing store, the type of washers you would have on, on your plumbing box of you know plumbing supplies. If you find the right size, they work perfectly. So I was able to find these rubber washers. They're very thin, very small, very tough that were exactly, exactly the same size as the original one inside. So the most difficult part about the whole procedure is putting the whole thing back together because you have to, you know, thread the, that washer through a couple of loops that holds the chest and the legs together and the waist, and then the rest of it kind of snaps into place. So if you can get past that, you're halfway there. They work pretty well. If you find the right size, like I said, save the old one because then you can compare them to the new ones. You go to the plumbing store, you go to Home Depot, Lowe's, whatever, go to the plumbing section, find the rubber washers, the very, very thin rubber bandy kind of washers. They're about the size of a dime, uh, maybe a little smaller. You know, it depends. You have to check them out. That's how you fix the whole waist and leg issue. Now, for knees... If you have weak knees or weak elbows, let's say, what they also recommend is you can take apart the figure, just like I mentioned before, which is a pain in the butt, taking it apart and putting it back together. But you can wrap plumber's tape, white plumber's tape. You can wrap that around the knee joint and then put the knee back into place. And that creates an additional little layer of something that creates that friction needed for your knees to kind of stay in place. That's another way of fixing the knee problem, the, that, that particular joint problem, not the rubber band problem. Some other uh, sites also suggest using a, a specific um, floor cleaning product. I forget the name of it, but you just kind of brush it on. And it, it's basically, it's almost like a gloss, uh, lacquery type of uh, liquid that builds up. So if you, if you just put a few drops in the knee, you let it dry, put a couple more drops, let it dry, it creates enough of a, of a little gunk in there, if you will, enough of a clear layer to create that friction that you need to re-strengthen them. So there's two different options. And if you guys do a search on YouTube for how to fix or how to repair loose joints on Mego figures, specifically with Mego, you will find you know, all these instructions. So I was able to start repairing these figures and soon I'm gonna start displaying them. Uh, now I am still on the hunt for, uh, let's see, I'm, I don't have a Wilma or I don't have the princess. So I'm still looking for those two figures. Luckily for me, I, you know, I don't really care about the condition too much. And with these, I guess that's a slight advantage is the fact that because they are, some of them in such rough shape in terms of, you know, loose joints, then, you know, you uh, might be able to find them a little cheaper than normal. 
Now, what these figures also suffer, in my opinion, is something similar that the Battlestar Galactica figures suffer from, and that is the facial details. While they do a pretty good job with hair, and they do a pretty good job with sculpting, they don't bother to draw or highlight anything within the face, which makes them look almost as if they're worn out. Now, some of them do have something because they have to give them, because it's so original to the character. Like, for example, Tiger Man has to have a mustache. You have to draw a mustache on him. You can't get around them. And the Draconian soldier has these, like, kind of like darkish eye makeup around the eyes. But for regular human characters, like Buck, for example, it kind of looks like Buck, but they never bother really to give his face any detail, any color detail. So that's a little unusual thing, and I, I don't understand the logic. I mean, I could imagine maybe it's just too difficult. It's just too damn difficult when they're spending so much time, you know, assembling this figure. They have to make it up somewhere else. So with Star Wars figures, they did take their time to give you as much facial detail as possible as far as painting goes. But with these, they don't go in that direction. So overall, I'm pretty happy with this line. Uh, again, it's a short line. You know, I don't have to get all of them. I might not end up getting all of them. You never know. If they're too expensive, I'm just passing. But I like to have a sampling of what these different lines are like. And, um, you know, it's interesting to see the, the progression of the history of action figures in terms of how certain innovations came and went. Things that are might be considered standard now were brand new back then and kind of failed back then in a way. I mean... I imagine G.I. Joe is probably the line that probably benefited the most from the super articulation features. But all these other lines, they kind of fell by the wayside, you know, with time. And obviously, when the main driving factor behind a line is a specific film or a specific TV show, you know, once that show or movie is out of sight, it's the death of the line usually. Other things like G.I. Joe, because of the, I guess the cartoon help, but, you know, there was a G.I. Joe interest even before the cartoon i imagine we you know with those larger figures they used to sell back in the 60s and 70s but an animated show can last a lot longer i mean look at transformers look at ninja turtles all these shows that spawned toys for years to come and didn't have to suffer you know the quick fate <laughs> that a lot of these other shows that we admire had but like i said overall very happy with this collection and if you guys are on the hunt keep your eyes out for tweaky's left arm if you see one send me a note <laughs> I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. Worst crossover ever. Oh, by the hammer of Thor! Well, what brings you guys here? We're looking for a recommendation about comic books. Oh, well, I recommend you don't open a store and sell them. My spidey sense is tingling. On today's comic book segment, we are going to look at Fright Night. Fright Night is one of my favorite horror... I don't know if you can call it horror comedies. It's a horror film, but it's a light horror film, if you will. It's full of funny moments. I know we've covered it a long, long time ago in the past. But I was completely unaware that there was actually a comic book adaptation of Fright Night, which is the thing that I'm into. I love these comic book adaptations. So I was doing some kind of weird search on the internet as usual, and all of a sudden I found a list of comic book movie adaptations that I was not aware of. And Fright Night happened to be one of them. Now, the way that this works is that 
they created a line of Fright Night-inspired stories, let's say. But the first two issues of that line covers the original film. So I was like, perfect. That's exactly what I'm looking for. So I picked up those two, got them at a reasonable price on eBay, and these came out in 1988. They're by Now Comics, not very familiar with this company. The story itself, it's pretty accurate to how the movie itself progresses. The style is something that I kind of hadn't seen in a while, but again, keep in mind, as I always mention, I'm not a comic book person, so I... I'm not too familiar with the history of these comic books and the styles and how they've changed. There was definitely a big change in, in style. Maybe it was somewhere in the 90s. Because when I look at this comic, if I quickly look at it without knowing what company made it, to me, I would describe it as a classic Marvel-looking comic. Anything from the 80s coming out of Marvel, for example, I would say that's what it looks like. The way that the characters are drawn, the fact that as usual, or as most times, I would say, they are not photorealistic. The sets portray what we saw on the movie, but they still have a comic book look to them. The likeness of the characters. Now, this is an ongoing issue, you know, with a lot of comic books, definitely look different. Again, this is probably a rights issue. You know, they might not have had the rights to use their likenesses but they do have the right to use the characters. The script, uh, you know, follows the story pretty well. Now, another unusual thing about this comic is something that I've never noticed before, and maybe it's just on this particular company that they do this, and that is at the bottom right of each page, within the art box, the pages are numbered. And that's something I've never noticed. And not only is it seem to me, it seems odd that they would number the pages, but the fact that they number them within the art itself, not in the white margin of the page, but in the actual art, they have to carve out a little space to write a number on it. Now, as I mentioned, the characters likenesses are not exact, but the action and the flow of the story is pretty good. Now, one thing that seems a little odd when I was reading it, is that there are many shots of Dandridge, which is the, the bad guy, the vampire, where I guess in order to create the, you know, scary-looking face or the mysterious-looking face, they portray his eyes in shadows a lot of times. And there are certain shots where it looks bizarre because, like, sometimes only one eye is in the shadow as opposed to both eyes. So to me, there were shots that he looked like a pirate or something. It looked like he was wearing an eye patch. But no, it was just part of the, you know, part of the look of trying to create these shadows. Now, one really unusual thing about the comic, that when I started reading it, and, you know, I started, you know, thumbing through the first issue, and it's like, all of a sudden at the end, I'm like, wait a minute, these scenes, I don't remember them in the movie. Well, what they do here is something a little odd. The story, let's say, let's call it part one because it's a two-part comic, ends on page 21, which is right around the point where Evil Ed is about to be pursued by Dandridge. And when you turn the page, one, two pages, there's a, the story kind of continues, kind of. And I say kind of because the story then starts with a television screen of Peter Vincent kind of like hosting the show and talking to the audience of, well, up next we have a blah, 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 you know, that kind of thing. And this is being watched by 
a woman at a medical facility, let's say, or a police station, as a psychologist comes in and he's going to start talking to some suspect who's in a straitjacket and blah, blah, blah. So I'm like thinking, wait a minute, I don't remember this at all from the movie. What is this? So after reading that, those other, it's about five, six pages long, what that is, it's a little miniature story that happens after the movie adaptation, part one. But they try to blend it in, so it almost looks like it's a continuation. Now, the way that it's not officially a continuation, in terms of it trying to disguise it as part of the movie, is because they do have a title when you reach the second page. This new little story is also numbered, like I mentioned earlier. All of a sudden, number one goes to the bottom, and number two, and number three, and number four, you know, that kind of numbering system. So now you're dealing with something completely different. There is a title page once you get to the second page. And this particular one is called By the Numbers. And, you know, I'm not buying the rest of this series because I'm really not interested in, you know, the future adaptations of the stories. I'm more about the movie adaptation itself. But this little story, it's about us kind of like a, a very cocky psychologist or psychiatrist that's interviewing a suspect and... He hypnotizes him because the guy thinks he's a werewolf and the guy is convinced he's not. And then at the end, the guy all of a sudden turns into a werewolf and attacks the, the psychiatrist. And then they're at a funeral, you know, burying the dead psychiatrist. And the final line is this other, the woman that was watching the TV as the other psychologist walks in. She talks about how she's going to go home and relax and do some paint by the number art. Well... The story is called By the Numbers. I don't necessarily understand why it's called By the Numbers. I know that at the end, the just as the werewolf is about to kill the doctor, he asks him about what the color fear is. And here's where it's bizarre. Now, I don't know if this is something that's a trademark to this particular comic book, or this is just a bizarre little story that they used. But as this werewolf is about to jump on the doctor, he is drawn... In white, basically, with black outlines, and he has numbers everywhere. So I'm not entirely sure <laughs> if this is part of the story, or this is some kind of gimmick that is part of this magazine, or if it's just for the particular story. You know, are we supposed to draw? <laughs> are we supposed to color? So I started looking for the color uh, chart to see. Well, okay, well, um, am I supposed to color this? Where the, where's the color guide? How am I supposed to color these? I don't know the colors. The more I think about it is that I have a feeling that it is, it's part of just a silly story, that that's how it is, and that I'm probably overthinking it. <laughs> but it, you know, it's like, what the hell is this? So, you know, I, I did, I, I was going back, I went back a couple pages going, is there a color chart here somewhere of, of what color am I supposed to paint these things? It's a silly little thing. But anyway, that is something that they did in this magazine, I guess, to entice you into, hey, there's going to be future stories, we might as well get a little taste of what these future stories look like again inspired by fright night now in this particular case whether they'll use actual characters you don't get that feel other than you're watching a tv show that's introducing something so maybe that's one way of doing it by the time you get to part two you know again you get more of the same what's really funny about part two that has really nothing to do with the adaptation itself but the actual opening page you know how a lot of comic books they have a little, not so much in the beginning, but usually at the end, I think, 
like a little note to the editor or a little little article that the editor writes, not necessarily about the story you're about to read, but just in general about the business or whatever. But this one, it's hilarious because they're talking about San Diego Comic-Con that they just attended. And it attracted 10,000 people. This is back in, I guess this must have been 1988 because this is when this particular issue came out. But 10,000 people, San Diego Comic-Con, 1988. That's funny. That is really funny because now I don't even remember what the numbers are up to. There are over 100,000 people. uh, Might even be close to 200. I don't know. And San Diego is the monster of all of them. And what's funny is that they're talking about here the type of people that are attracted. In other words, what kind of presentations they have. And they say here, San Diego Comic-Con convention has publishers, dealers, artists, writers, etc. from all over the world. This year's convention, August 4th, through the 7th, attracted over 10,000 people. It's funny because they don't mention here at all film, television, which is what seems now to grab all the headlines and consume (laughs) what the San Diego Comic-Con is all about. Uh, You know, a lot of people do complain that it's, these conventions are no longer about comics. Comics are kind of off to the side, but they do keep the name Comic-Con. Anyway, that's a a cute little thing about the, uh, the part two part of the book. The rest of the book, again, continues pretty faithful. It has the same style, obviously, as before. And the story progresses just like we suspected would. Just like a typical comic book, the colors are pretty rich. And again, we're looking at this 80s-style comic book. Nowadays, we see so many more styles. Some of them are more photorealistic. Even the quality of the paper is different now. Sometimes it's very glossy paper. Some of them look like pieces of art. They look like screen grabs sometimes. They're so rich. But this particular one is still part of that, I would consider to be this old-style classic comic book. The story ends pretty much the way that I remember it in the movie. It's pretty accurate, even all the way to the end where you get to see that possible red eyes and a red mouth, you know, looking through the other side of the window, you know, at the end of the movie. And the part two is also numbered like the other one before, and It is interesting, the fact that the first panel is number 22, which is where issue one kind of stopped at that point. So issue one ends at 21, issue two starts at 22, so it makes sense. And that last final, final panel, there's a little little tiny headline in the bottom that says, next issue, the return of Evil Ed, an all-new adventure. Oh, okay, so maybe they do try to use original characters in some actual part of the story shape or form other than the television you know style overall i was pretty happy with it there is nothing really that i would consider to be extras you know i do love it when they throw extras extra scenes or an extra something in there you know you do have an extra chunk of information here which is the part one that i mentioned before which is that kind of like jumping off board section that they want you to try and entice you into buying whatever it is that comes next in this line But as far as faithful to the story, I would consider this to be a great one. The movie is fantastic. I've talked about it, you know, way, way, way in the past. It is one of my favorites, all-time fun horror films. You know, there's there's horror films that are like disturbingly horror, (laughs) but this one is like a fun. It's almost like an adventure horror film. Tom Holland was the director. William Ragsdale uh, was the star. He was he was Bruce Derp, Charlie. Chris Sarandon, one of my favorite actors in a great, great, probably my favorite role of his. Uh, he was so perfect for this movie. The great Roddy McDowell. You know, we talked about Planet of the Apes so many times recently that, you know, this is something that gave Roddy McDowell, I don't know if financially or, or career-wise it gave him a boost, but in my eyes, it was like, oh my God, it's the return of Roddy McDowell because he was so good. And a lot of other, you know, people that are in it, a lot of ex-television people. You know, this wasn't a 
highbrow or a, you know a superstar type of film. This was a, a nice little what would be considered to be a B horror film, and it's kind of about B horror movie actor. <laughs> you know that's that's who uh, that's who uh, Roddy McDowell plays. Peter Vincent, the you know the great vampire killer. I guess he's supposed to be like an ex actor that now is unfortunately just doing you know the the creature creature feature of the night type of <laughs> we don't see a lot of that these days you don't have those kind of uh characters that used to be around i mean I, I barely remember them even when i was young and i know they were out there i know that there were some out there nowadays i do every now and then run into something called spengooly and it's it's really really cheesy show where this guy dressed up kind of like a vampire maybe something like that introduces like really bad horror films <laughs> but that's part of the the act the act is i think it has to be horrible it has to be cheesy uh, and that's part of the the good thing about it but they've had those type of presentations in the past they've they've been around i'm not again i'm not too familiar with them but that's the type of uh situation that you have when an actor has to kind of like demean themselves and do those kind of uh, television shows just to continue to work. The other thing I loved about the film uh, was the music. The music was great. And that's something you really can't transfer into the comic book, obviously, because it's a comic book. You can't hear anything. But it had a great soundtrack, a lot of cool little music in it. And they did do a sequel and I believe they might have even done a comic book adaptation of that, but that I'm not interested. I think I've seen the sequel once. I absolutely hated it. Not everybody, you know, from the first film crossed over to the second film. And later in 2009, I believe they did the remake of Fright Night, which was okay. You know, it was a modern version of it, modern actors, that sort of thing. No big deal. But this one is always a fun one to watch. And at this point, it's a fun one to read, too. I do remember I did have the movie tie-in adaptation of Fright Night, which was also a pretty good read. And this comic book adaptation is a good companion, I believe, to all these Fright Night, you know, different versions of being able to relive the story. So if you are a fan of Fright Night and you'd like to collect, you know, different things, because there's not a lot of stuff associated with the film out there, if you believe it or not, you know, this is a great little thing to have that is part of the official Fright Night collection. All right, well, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We did the posters of the month, which we're going to continue doing them every now and then. I absolutely love these older posters. And it's a way of actually examining and reliving some of these films from so long ago. Also, I hope you guys uh, liked our Buck Rogers action figure segment. You know, we have so many more to go in terms of all of these old vintage, not only style, in terms of how these older figures used to be made, but there's so many more lines that seem to be more prevalent, you know, in the 80s and the late 70s that nowadays, you know, you just don't get to see them anymore. And I hope you guys also enjoyed our comic book adaptation of Fright Night, this two-part book that they had put out gave us a little further insight into this great fun film that we love and some little tidbits, uh, you know, that we got as a bonus features, I guess. You know, we will have more of these comic book movie adaptations in the future. We don't seem to see a lot of it nowadays, really. It's really odd, you know, other than with Star Wars and that sort of thing. So until the next time, thank you for listening and we will see you here soon at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody.
the Starfighter and Buck Rogers. Okay, Kane, get ready to fight. Meet Kane and the Draconian Marauder. You'll never catch me. Planes need assembly. Each plane and action figure sold separately. There's Twiki. Get the robot. You can pretend he's being chased by Draco, Tiger Man, and the Draconian Guard. Calling Buck Rogers, help! Buck Rogers, Twiki, Draco, and Tiger Man. Each sold separately by Mego. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2017. <laughs>